Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, the last three weeks at Crosspoint have been interesting. Uh, We've been in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians, raw, gritty letter. A couple weeks ago, the topic was sexual, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. Last week it was sex within marriage, and today it's divorce and remarriage. So, hallelujah, what a savior. It's been a great three weeks, um, and uh, I think the following uh, parts of this book will give us a little bit of a let up from the intensity, but uh, today we have the pedal to the middle. I've, I actually rarely dream, but this week I've had two dreams. Um, I don't know if this has to do with my just anxiety over just the depth of this truth, but... Uh, both of them involved me being late for church, one of them. Uh, I think Paul Fincher stole my Bible and my notes, and I was here on the grounds, but I couldn't find them, and I was just scurrying around looking for them. <laughs> and the other one, and this is a little, for all you therapists in the room, you will probably psychoanalyze me over lunch today and my deep-rooted insecurities, which I confess there are many. Um, I was being chased in the foyer right before church by land-dwelling great white sharks. (laughs) They were walking on their fins like that guy in Nemo, the character, but he... Anyways. Well, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to read this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, we are going to use that text as a springboard to look at what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, and uh, really the Bible touches on it in three different places, just very briefly in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, written by Moses, and then Jesus speaks of it in three of the Gospels, actually quite briefly, and then Paul touches on it in the text that we're going to read and and work through today. Here's a couple burdens I have as, um, as as we work through this text, and, and I want I want you to know that uh, there are so many different scenarios when it comes to the complications of human relationships and marriage and divorce that it is just literally impossible for me to touch upon every scenario that might be present in this room or that exists in, in this group of people. It's, it's just impossible to consider them all. And, and there are many situations where there are no easy answers. Today, I'm going to give you seven principles that I believe the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage, but, but remember that we're sort of doing a 30,000-foot sort of flyover today in, in a lot of ways. And, and I want you to know that, that although I will not be able to touch on every situation, obviously that the leadership, the elders, me in particular of this church, are very willing to wrestle with and pray with you about the, the intricacies of your situation. This is not just a, oh, well, that's the sermon we did on that particular difficult issue. Now let's just move on and case closed. No, that is not our heart today. And so we are willing to wrestle with and pray with and counsel you in, with you in this very difficult area should it pertain to you. The second thing that's a burden of my heart is that this week as I was preparing, uh, and the way I generally prepare is I just read the text and I, and I just absorb it. And I read a lot during the week, and uh, I was feeling sort of this sense in my heart, Wednesday or Thursday, that I was sort of getting off the tracks a little bit about really getting the truth of the scriptures right. 
and being precise. And, and believe me, I want to do that. But yet, but yet I also, as much as I want to get it right and be clear about what the Bible says, regardless of, of how that may hit us, I also want our time together to be filled with grace. The Bible says something about Jesus. It says that he was full of grace and truth. And sometimes Christians err on one side or the other. They're just all truth and no grace, and that leads to dead fundamentalism. Or they're all grace and no truth, and that leads to liberal, wicked, uh, poor theology. And so we want to be a, a beautiful Christ-like combination of grace and truth today. And thirdly, I, I want us to listen with humility. I know some of you have been anticipating this message because divorce has affected your life in very difficult ways. And the temptation for you, and I, I want to encourage you to guard your heart against this, is for you to kind of zero in on whether or not I address your specific situation and whether or not you have some sort of biblical justification for your situation or whether or not this church or the Lord is against you in your particular situation. Don't listen with sort of that selfish specificity. Open your heart up to the to the truth and the counsel of God's word. And, and then finally, uh, I want to say that this applies to all of us. If you're a single guy and you're 22 and you're not married and divorce isn't necessarily in your family, don't check out. Don't check out. This applies to all of us. The gospel calls us into a sort of beautiful gospel-centered interconnectedness. This may not directly affect you in your life, but if you are part of a church, if you are a Christian, you are so much more connected to the body of Christ than I think we even realize that you are very, very affected by this. If one person in this body is hurting in any way, whether it is that they have been sinned against or they have sinned, we all are affected by this. And so let's lean forward, so to speak, in the foxhole and consider what the scriptures would say to us about this. And finally, I'm always burdened by this, is that especially when we're dealing with specific situations like this that apply to specific situations in life. I think sometimes the temptation is to sort of zero down the scriptures as sort of a little book of principles that apply just to us in life when really the Bible is not about just individual specific situations, but it's about the glory of God in Christ and what he has done to reconcile a lost world to himself. So let's not, let's not reduce the truth of the scriptures down to a little village God. Let's, let's remember that we're, we're worshiping the God of the universe, and there are big things going on in this world. There is the gospel going forth in India. Even as we speak right now, if you've been following the situation in Egypt, I believe there's, there's Iranian warships approaching the Suez Canal. It's a tremendous threat to Israel. There are big issues going on in this world, bigger than just our little lives. And so let's remember that. Let's not reduce God down to a village deity as we think about these things. All right, well, let's read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll work back through these verses. All right, one little thing I want to, I want to mention before we read. Um, you know, I love the way I say, well, let's read, and then you guys all look down, and then I say something, and then everybody looks back up. I'm <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to play yo-yo with your necks. But um, one little thing here that's a little potentially confusing is that in this particular text, Paul will mention a few things in parentheses. He'll, in one sense, say, now, this is I speaking, not the Lord. And then he will say a few sentences later, now, this is the Lord speaking, not I. Now, just so you know, 
Paul is not sort of bouncing out of divine inspiration of the scriptures. He's not sort of taking his Bible writer hat off and saying, okay, now this is an uninspired sentence here. What he's saying there very simply is in those parentheses is that he's saying that in this particular situation, Jesus spoke directly to this issue, and we'll get to those verses in uh, the Gospels. And then when he addresses another group of people, he says, he's saying, I'm speaking now, not the Lord. He's not saying that this is not, uh, this is not inspired by God. He's saying that in Jesus' ministry here on this earth, he did not specifically teach about this specific situation. But now Paul, through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Jesus, carries with him the authority of God. So didn't want you to be tripped up by that. All right, let's read in First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, in that two verses, Paul is addressing the unmarried and widows. We will pick back up that sentence. Really, Those two sentences really go with what we're going to look at in the coming weeks when we talk about the gospel and singleness. Now he gets into divorce and remarriage. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate, separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, she should not, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, let's pray. And as I'm praying, ask the Lord to help me explain this clearly. But Lord, this is a magnificent text. And I need your help. So would you come now, because you are gracious, and help us. Lord, what a privilege it is to preach through the Bible and to hide behind the truth of the Word of God. To arrive at this very difficult subject simply because that is what is next in Corinthians. And so I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room, whether we are affected by divorce and remarriage or not, I pray that you would humble us all. And Lord, even as we zero in on this very specific issue in life, we do pray, God, that your sovereign way would take hold in this world, in this universe, that Afghanistan and Iraq would 
Lord, both of those wars would end quickly, and we pray for Israel and Egypt and the situation there in the Middle East and for your hand, and we know, God, that you, you declare the end from the beginning. So that gives us great confidence as we pray to a sovereign God. And now, Lord, as we zero in on our lives, would you give us a special grace to understand this text and then help us realize and let us see that today is ultimately not about marriage or divorce or remarriage, but it is about the good and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and what you have done on the cross to reconcile sinners to yourself. And I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, let's work our way back through 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16 quickly. And then I'm going to give you seven principles that the Bible gives us about divorce and remarriage. And uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture today. I would recommend that you just not necessarily flip around, maybe stay in 1 Corinthians. We're going to have all the scriptures up on the screen. You can write them down. And all of these notes will be on the internet with the audio and the video of this message uh, by early this week. All right. Verses 8 and uh, 9, as I mentioned, Paul is speaking to unmarried and single people and widows. We're going to talk about that when he picks back up on that line of thinking in verse 17 in a couple weeks. But um, Paul is speaking in verse 10. Let's read it again. To married Christians. He says, to the married, to those Corinthian Christians who are married, I give this charge. And he says that Jesus said this, that, that, that we should not separate from our spouse. Verse 11, if, if we do, we should remain unmarried and be then reconciled to our spouse and the husband and the wife should not divorce his wife. And so what Paul is saying there when he says, I, not the Lord, speak to this, he is picking up on Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Now, if you, if you want to flip along with me, go to Matthew 19, and this is a pretty important text. Jesus, this is the, really the, the one time where Jesus directly addresses the issue of divorce and remarriage. And what's happening in this particular text in Matthew chapter 19 is that Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees who are wanting to trap Jesus, so to speak, in a dispute between two theological schools. Now, um, there were liberals and conservatives even in that day. So there was kind of an MSNBC and Fox News of, you know, the, the Jewish schools of theological thought. And so there were two different lines of interpretation of the Old Testament. And these Pharisees are wanting to come to Jesus and they're wanting to trap him so that he would be at odds with one of these particular schools. And they're also probably wanting to find out what Jesus thinks about divorce and adultery because his cousin, John the Baptist, just a few chapters earlier, got his head chopped off for confronting Herod, the ruler, for his adulterous affair and then marriage to his, let me get this straight now, his brother's wife, who was also his sort of step-niece, and he, I mean, it was, a, it was a terrible situation. It was like daytime soap opera TV, Jerry Springer show situation, where Herod was married to his, his sister-in-law slash kind of niece in an adulterous relationship, and John the Baptist spoke out against that, and he got his head chopped off. And so now they're wanting to kind of find out where Jesus is on this issue so that maybe Jesus might find himself in the same situation. And so they're not truly wanting to know where Jesus stands on this issue. They're just trying to trap him and get him in trouble. And so in Matthew chapter 19, 
Uh, Let me start reading uh, in verse 3. This is what it says. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so what they're doing is they are now referring back to Moses' stipulation in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, I know this is getting kind of technical here, but shake it off now. Hang with me. It'll, 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 it'll crank up in just a second. But what they're doing is they're alluding back to really the only Old Testament passage referring directly to divorce, where in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses instructs the Jewish people. He says that if a man divorces his wife, or if, if a man finds anything indecent in his wife, he may write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then he goes on in a couple verses to say, but if then she remarries, and then that second marriage ends in divorce or the death of her second husband, that first husband should not remarry his ex-wife who's now been married to another man. Now, if you read that language, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, Moses is not insisting that they have to be divorced. What's happening in that situation is, is that Moses is just sort of regulating and bringing some sort of, some sort of uh, 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 standard to the craziness and the hardness of heart of the Jewish people who were getting divorced for any reason. In fact, some of the Jewish schools of thought took Moses' words to say where he said that if a man finds anything indecent in his wife, to mean that even if she didn't like wash the dishes the right way that he could get rid of her, or if he just saw another woman that he found to be more attractive, he could just dump this one and go to that one. And, and that's not too foreign to us because we have people that do that even in our day. But the more conservative line of thinking interpreted that in something indecent in her to mean some sort of sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. And so from Moses' stipulation not to encourage divorce, but just to regulate the rampant divorce that was going on in the Jewish community at the time, he writes this, this sort of regulating stipulation. And now, centuries later, the Jews were using it as a sort of, uh, a sort of license to just do whatever they want and get divorced whenever they wanted to get divorced. And Jesus doesn't, here's, notice what Jesus does now as we keep reading. He doesn't take them to what Moses says, but he goes back to the beginning and shows them what the true reason for marriage is. And so in verse 4, he answered and said, he doesn't speak about what Moses said so much. He goes back to what God's intention was in marriage. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so what Jesus is saying there is that divorce is never, was never God's intention. Moses was just giving them a regulation to, to help them sort through the mess of their life and to, in some sense, sort of decrease the numbers of divorces. It's not God saying that this is what you should do. It was just a, a permitting stipulation. Think of it this way. Think of, and no analogy is perfect, so there's some breakdowns in this analogy. But think of Moses' instructions in the Old Testament and Jewish thought at this time as sort of God's way of disciplining his children who are arguing. Think of two siblings that are in the living room. I've never lived through this situation, but I've heard theoretically about this happens in some households. Think about two siblings that are fighting, and they're just throwing stuff at each other. I mean, you know, pinching each other, stealing each other's toys, 
being selfish. And the father comes in the room, and because of the sin of these two, maybe one was more guilt than the other, but just, just to separate them for a while, the father says, you go to your room, and you go to your room. And so he separates them just as a way of regulating life in the family, not because it's his desire that they be separated. And that's exactly what's happening in the Old Testament when Moses says that they are allowed to break this relationship, not because it's God's intention, just because we're, we're broken sinners and we need to do life together, and you guys are jacking up family life, and so you go to each other's rooms. Now, I realize that analogy is not perfect, but that's why God, through Moses, even permitted divorce, not because it was his intention, but because he was just conceding, in a sense, to our brokenness. And so... Um, Jesus writes, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and he says, this was never God's intention, stay married. And so if we're looking at what Jesus is saying in this text, the first thing he's saying to us is, this is not one of the principles that I'll get to later, but he's saying to the married people, to the Christians, it's God's intention that you stay married. It's God's intention that you stay married. If you are married God's heart is for you to stay married. Okay, so that's between two Christians. Now Paul, and he anticipates the questions of some Corinthian believers who are married to unbelievers, and that's what verses 12 through 14, because some of these people may be saying, okay, but that's between two Christians. But I become a Christian after I got married, and I'm married to a pagan, unbelieving person. What do I do? And so then he says in verse 12, through 14, to the rest I say, in other words, to those that are Christians who find themselves now having come to Christ after their marriage and now are married to an unbelieving person. He says, to them, to the rest I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, and these are some, these next couple verses have been misinterpreted by a lot over the years. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to her, she should not divorce him. So he's saying, even if you're married to an unbeliever, stay with that person. But they were also thinking, because of Jewish Old Testament laws and because of their holiness laws, they were thinking, well, if I'm married to a pagan, like I shouldn't, you know, because of holiness laws, I shouldn't even touch that person. So if there's anything unclean in my house, in this case, my unbelieving spouse, am I sort of prohibited by God to even interact with and touch this person because... Remember, they're thinking of these holiness laws in the Old Testament about not touching food that's been sacrificed to idols and all of this very specific holiness uh, regula regulative laws that, that God had in the Old Testament. And they're saying, oh, now I'm a Christian. Is this, is this like that? Should I not even touch my husband or my wife that's an unbeliever? And Paul writes to them and he says, no. He says, no. In verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of, his, of her husband. Now that does not mean, listen carefully, that doesn't mean that just because an unbeliever is married to a believer, that sort of through like spiritual pillow osmosis, they become Christians. No, that's not it. And then, then he goes on to say that otherwise your children would be unclean as well, but also they are holy. That doesn't mean that just because a child is born into a home where one of the parents is Christians, that they are necessarily going to become Christians. No, each person 
must turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. But what Paul is saying to them, he's correcting the potentiality of their warped view of the holiness laws, and he's saying, no, you can still interact with your husband and wife. You can still interact with your children who are not yet Christians. They are not unholy. God's special grace rests on you because you are the one believer in that household. And God is, in a sense, not in a saving way, but in a sense, sanctifying that whole household because of that one believer in that household. And you can interact with and touch and love and honor and connect with in every physical way your spouse who is not a believer. And so Paul is saying to the Christians, stay married. To the Christians who are married to non-Christians, stay married even to your unbelieving spouse. In fact, he says in verse 16, at the end of this text, he says, you never know, they may actually come to faith. In fact, I believe that's God's hope. They may actually come to faith because of your witness. And so stay married. And then in verse 15, when we'll unpack this a little bit more in a second, verse 15, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so he's saying, it is my intention that you stay married if you're married to a Christian. It is my intention that you stay married even if you're married to an unbeliever. But if that unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, then he says, you are free. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a second. All right, so now with that as a transition, let's now look to seven principles about what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and the gospel. Seven principles. Number one, we'll go through these. Some of them will settle down on some a little bit more slowly. Number one, marriage is a sacred covenant relationship between one man and one woman intended by God to last for a lifetime. When Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees about their little loophole, he takes them not back to Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy about when you could get divorced, but he takes them back to God's instruction in the Garden of Eden when he calls a man and a woman one flesh. And that word one in Hebrew is the same word that later on in Deuteronomy the Lord uses when he says that the Lord our God is one God. And so men and women, when they are joined together in marriage, are much more connected than checking accounts and households and physically. They are connected in a deep, deep, profoundly, intrinsically spiritual way that echoes the oneness of the Trinity. And that that oneness is not a contract depending on future performance. That oneness is a sacred unit, union that is meant to last for a lifetime. So that is principle number one. Marriage is a sacred covenant relationship between one man and one woman intended by God to last for a lifetime. Principle number two. Divorce is permitted but not required. And that's important. Divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. Okay, this is where we need to do a little work. In the Gospels, Jesus 
teaching on divorce is recorded in three different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't touch on it. In Matthew, he makes a statement in the Sermon on the Mount, and then another statement in Matthew 19, and then he, it, this same scenario is repeated in Mark, and then also very briefly in Luke. And so let me read in uh, Matthew, we read Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Let me read it again, Matthew 19, verse 9. It says, Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that's important, and marries another, commits adultery. And then in Mark, the gospel writer Mark records this same scenario, and he writes in Mark chapter 10, verses Verse 11 and 12, he says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, he's basically saying the same thing. But in this particular instance, Mark is not including the little clause about sexual immorality. He just says, you shouldn't divorce your wife. And if you marry another, it's adultery. And then Luke records basically the same thing Mark does in just one sentence. Luke chapter 16, verse 18, he says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay, so click in. I know I've thrown a lot of verses at, at you, for, so shake it off. Shake the cobwebs off and look at me for a second here. We've got three Gospels that touch on this issue. We've got Matthew, who says that if any man divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, so he has that sexual immorality clause in there, commits adultery if he remarries another. And then you've got Mark and Luke over here that have sort of condensed down that statement and are just, Jesus, they're recording Jesus' words as just saying, any man divorces his wife and marries another, it's adultery. Leaving out that sexual immorality sort of qualifier in there. Why is that? Does that mean that one of the Gospels is wrong and do we have some problem with inspiration? No. It means that, very likely, that Mark and Luke are probably assuming that knowledge of what Jesus had taught in Matthew and that what Jesus is doing in Mark and Luke is not contradicting or, 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 or contradicting what he's saying in Matthew, but he is just sort of, he, it was assumed in that audience that remarriage and divorce was a possibility when there was sexual immorality. And so Matthew, we can look to that Matthew text and say that what Jesus says there tells us that in situations where there has been sexual immorality, divorce is permitted but not required. Let me stop here for a second and say that if that is the case in your marriage, realize the heart of God, that divorce is permitted but it is not required. Sexual unfaithfulness is a very difficult thing to get over if you have been sinned against in that way. But it is not beyond God's reach to heal your heart and with much counseling and much time and much, much wisdom, it is possible to save even a marriage that has been touched deeply by that terrible sin. But the Bible is clear that divorce is permitted biblically on the grounds of sexual immorality. That's point number two. Point number three, divorce is permitted but not required again if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. Okay, so we've really got only two reasons in the scriptures why divorce is permissible. One, sexual immorality. And then secondly, Paul mentions in the text that we read, divorce is permitted but not required if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. Go back to that. He says, 
1 Corinthians 7, 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So what does Paul mean when he says we are not enslaved? I think that what Paul means there, and I would be in agreement with virtually the vast majority of evangelical Protestant scholars since the Protestant Reformation would say that in those cases, the the believing spouse is not required to stay in a marriage where the unbelieving spouse has deserted or has abandoned the marriage or has just moved on. You are no longer required to just sort of hang on there. Divorce is permitted, but not required if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. What about cases of physical or severe uh, emotional abuse? Does this uh, classify abandonment? What if the spouse is there, but they're not really there? Well, Obviously, in cases of physical abuse, separation for the protection generally of the wife is in order. And then in a situation where maybe you even have a person who's professing to be a Christian and they're beating their wife, that's where church discipline and the steps of Matthew 18 need to come in. That's why it's so important, so important to be part of a church. And that's why it's so important for churches to understand church discipline so that the, so that the body of the church, the brothers and sisters of the church, the leaders of that church, go to this offending brother and say, your actions are out of line with the truth of the scriptures, repent. And if that brother does not repent and he continues to beat his wife, then the Bible has some very severe things to say to that brother. It says that if he will not turn from that sin, that we as a church need to put him out of the church and treat him as a tax collector or a Gentile, or in other words, as an unbeliever. And so there comes a time when the sin of a husband who may still be in the marriage is so great that we can no longer validate his testimony as a Christian And then he would move from the category, at least in the church's eyes, again, only God can judge our hearts, but then there comes a point when a husband's sin generally can be so egregious that we now have to treat him as an unbeliever because of his physical abuse against his wife. And in that case, the wife, again, we would desire reconciliation, but in that case, I believe after much time, the wife may be open to the possibility of breaking that marriage because that husband, at least according to the scriptures, we can no longer validate him as an unbeliever. And so, or as a believer. And so divorce is permitted but not required if an unbelieving spouse or an unrepentant spouse who now, after much church discipline, we treat as an unbeliever, abandons the marriage. Number four. This is where it starts to get a little thick. There's much debate about this. Remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds, I believe, is permissible. There is much debate. Men who I respect greatly in the faith come down on different sides of this. There is a position which is more conservative and hardline that says that there is never the possibility of remarriage after divorce, even if it's for biblical reasons. And then there are men that I greatly respect who I would side with that say that when there is a biblical reason for divorce, there is the possibility of remarriage. What are those two reasons? Again, remember, the two reasons for biblical reasons for divorce are sexual unfaithfulness by one of the believers in the marriage or the abandonment of an unbeliever. 
Now, we must enter into this with much humility and wisdom. The Bible is clear. There are only two permissible reasons biblically for divorce. Infidelity and abandonment. There are no other biblically permissible reasons for divorce. And therefore, there is biblically no permissibility for remarriage after an unbiblical reason for divorce. So that brings us to point five. Remarriage, it's the natural follow-up after point four. Point five, remarriage after divorce without biblical grounds is not permissible and results in adultery. Remarriage after a divorce without biblical grounds is not permissible biblically and results in adultery. This is what Jesus says. Again, back to the text that we've been reading. Jesus in Matthew 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and now we can include also Paul's exception clause from 1 Corinthians 7, or the abandonment of a spouse, and marries another, commits adultery. And so worded maybe a little bit more simply, if you divorce your spouse and you remarry another for any reason other than those two mentioned, sexual immorality or abandonment, that second marriage results in adultery. Now, I realize that is hard. And I realize that may apply to some of the marriages in this room. So where does that leave us? Well, that takes us to principle number six. A Christian in an unbiblical divorce and remarriage should repent receive forgiveness and grace and remain as they are. Listen to Jesus' words again in Matthew 19. He says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another. Jesus uses the word for that second unbiblical remarriage, he actually uses the word marriage. So you're married. You are now married to that second person. Now what should you do? You should repent. You should receive the forgiveness of Christ and his grace, and you should stay as you are. This is what Paul goes on to say in the rest of Corinthians. In verse 17, he says that we should remain as we are. In verse 20, listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was when he was called. Can you imagine just the, the confusion, the, the chaos that would have existed in Corinth and that would exist even here in this own room if we all just decided to have the courage to, to obey the Bible and this 
this gracious clause of remaining as you are was not in there, and we just all had to get up and un just tangle up. Well, I've got to now divorce this person that I've been married to for 20 years because I've got to go back and reconcile. No, Paul says. Here's, here, listen to my heart on this. Although if you remarried unbiblically, and I don't even think unbiblically is a word. I looked it up in the dictionary, and it's actually not a word, but you know what I'm talking about. If you remarry unbiblically, okay, that resulted in adultery, but you should not think of that marriage now as being a sort of perpetual, for the rest of time, being an adulterous relationship. You repent, you receive God's grace, you now have the knowledge of the Bible, you receive the flow and the mercy of the power of the gospel for your life, and you remain as you are and you live for Christ. And Christ honors that marriage. He sees that marriage. He recognizes that marriage. You need not walk around for the rest of your life with a scarlet letter D stitched on your sweater. That is not the character of God. Listen to me. You need not walk under that. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you find yourself in that situation, and today is the first day that you have heard this biblical knowledge, you need not hang your head in shame. You need to feel the weight of God's command. You need to let it push on you for repentance, and then you need to receive the grace and the joy and the refreshing that comes from humility as we recognize God's law and how we have fallen short from it, and then you need to get up and you need to love the husband or the wife that you are with, and you need to make that marriage go for the glory of God and for your joy. Rest in that. Know that if you are divorced, know that if you've been remarried in an impermissible way, know that you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God or at Crosspoint, and we love you, but you need to know the truth of the scriptures. So that if you have bypassed that, and if it, was a, if it was a thing that you didn't realize 15, 20 years ago or a year ago, that you understand God's law so you understand deeper the character of God. And when you push into the character of God with repentance and humility, what you find is not judgment, but you find grace and mercy and a well of his refreshing grace that is deeper than any, any human frailty. And so receive that and bask in that and take comfort in the grace of God for our tangled up situations. Friends, divorce is not an unpardonable sin. In fact, if you have been divorced in a biblical way, you, you did not sin. Every situation, every human relationship, we both bring sin into it. Although all divorce is a product of human failure, every divorce is not sinful. But even if you were the offending spouse in a divorce, friends, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. You, too, can experience full restoration and the grace of God. But because I love you, I also need to tell you this. Although divorce is not an unpardonable sin, if you are in the middle of considering a divorce, 
And what I just said about how divorce is not an unpardonable sin and how if you do remarry unbiblically, that if you repent, then you can be restored just like any other person who fails. Do not take that. Listen. Do not take that as a license to sin. Do not presume upon the kindness and the grace of God. The Bible gets very severe when we do that. At the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, he says, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But then in, verse, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, so does this mean that we might sin so that grace may abound? No! And so if you are sort of taking this as a, whew, I can just follow through with what I'm going to do because God's going to forgive me anyway. Friends, if that is your heart, you may be giving evidence that you don't truly understand the gospel. Do not presume upon God's grace. Repentance is not something that you have to give God. It is a gift that he gives you. And if you get into the habit of just saying, I'm going to bank on God's forgiveness and carry through with this disobedience, you never know when that may be the moment that God gives you over to the hardness of your heart. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, he says to the nation of Israel, he says, today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Friends, tomorrow is not promised and repentance is not promised. If you are wavering, and if any way in your selfishness, you have heard what I just said about the grace of God, even in unbiblical divorces, as a sort of license for you to carry through your plans. Friends, I plead with you, turn back. Turn back. Turn back. And we'll wrestle with you. We'll go to the mat as long as it takes to plead with you and counsel with you and pray with you. To persuade you not to divorce. But if you have, and if you've worn that scarlet letter D stitched on your heart, oh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's you, friend. Even if your life has been tattered and torn, there is forgiveness in Christ. A final point, and I end with this. Marriage is meant to display the far greater truth of the gospel. Why is this so important? Why is the standard so seemingly hard? Because marriage is about something much bigger than our happiness and our feelings of love here on this earth. Marriage is meant to display the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, which would be a great chapter to read if you're a married couple or a dating couple or a single guy, or a single woman. So I guess that's everybody. <laughs> this chapter 5 of Ephesians is one of the most poignant 
and beautiful descriptions of how a man should treat his wife and how a woman should treat her husband and how this echoes something so much greater. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 31, he says, quoting Genesis 2, 24, he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto a wife, take unto himself a wife. And then he says this is a profound mystery. He now magnifies marriage to something bigger than a Lifetime Movie Network special, to something bigger than a junk episode of Bachelor, to something bigger, bigger than 60 years here on this earth. He magnifies it and he says, this is a profound mystery because it speaks of Christ's relationship to the church. And so marriage here on this earth, these 60 years, should God be gracious that he might give us in marriage, is more than our happiness. It is to echo Christ's sacrificial covenantal love with us, his church. It's to signify that Jesus has took our sin on the cross and that he has given his life to all who turn and trust in him. And he says to his bride, which is his people, the church, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in a little microcosm sort of way, every little marriage, whether it's Christian or not, was instituted and ordained by God and is to be just a tiny little spark reflecting that great and glorious relationship of a God who will not leave his spouse. This is what John Piper writes in his book, This Momentary Marriage, which we have for sale in the resource room, which I would recommend that every married couple and every single person in this room read. Everybody should read this book. If you've ever uttered the word marriage, it is so good. Because it takes marriage out of the goofy little puppy dog and dandelion and lollipop, selfish American uh, idealism, and it magnifies it to a display of God's relationship with this church. This is what Piper says in that book. Staying merry, therefore is not mainly about staying in love. It is about keeping covenant. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is a sacred covenant promise. The same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. Therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife Ever. Husbands, do you realize that? Jesus will never leave you if you're a Christian. Christ will never leave his bride. There may be times of painful distance and tragic backsliding on our part, but Christ keeps his covenant forever. Marriage is a display of that. That is the ultimate thing we can say about it. It puts the glory of Christ's covenant-keeping love on display. The most important or implication of this conclusion is that keeping covenant with our spouse is as important as telling the truth about God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. I know this runs counter to every Lifetime movie network special you've seen, and I know this is going to suck the romanticism right out of here, but there's something bigger, there's something bigger than Hallmark cards in marriage. Marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. 
not liking your spouse 20 years into it is not grounds for divorce. Jesus doesn't leave his bride. I imagine there's times in our wicked rebellion against him that he doesn't like us too much either. But he doesn't leave his bride. Marriage is not mainly about staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way he relates to his people. It is about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. He forged a covenant in the white hot heat of his suffering in our place. He made an imperfect bride his own with the price of his blood and covered her with the garments of his own righteousness. He said, I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Marriage is meant by God to put that gospel reality on display in the world. That, that is why we are married. That is why all married people are married, even when they don't know and embrace the gospel. Friends, God tells one of his Old Testament prophets to marry an unfaithful prostitute. And he says, stay with her. And he tells married people, even in the difficulty of modern life and marriage, stay together. To the married let me encourage you to stay married. Stay married. Even if you're in a difficult marriage. And if that seems impossible to you, I am not so naive that one sermon on marriage will solve all your problems. In fact, it may intensify them. That's what truth does. It divides. It may intensify your issues in marriage right now, especially if you're sitting next to the person that you're at odds with. But do you realize, listen, we're not just going to drop this truth on you and walk away and say, deal with it. We will wrestle with you until Jesus comes back or we die and pray with you and counsel with you for the sake of the preservation of your marriage. To the divorced, the heart of this church and the heart of this pastor is one of grace and love towards you. If you have been divorced for a biblical reason, and your heart is inclined towards remarriage, I believe the Bible permits that. And I would even encourage that in your life if that's the way that you feel. But can I just caution you to be wise and cautious for the sake of your own soul? Don't jump out of a bad marriage into a new one without probing the depths of your own heart so that God might restore any brokenness in you or any hurt in you so that it isn't transferred over into the next relationship. To the divorced who have been remarried for unbiblical reasons, oh, hear my heart as I said earlier, repent and receive grace and remain as you are. Stay in the marriage you're in. You don't need to walk in shame. Once you repent and receive the grace of God, that marriage now now live in that marriage. You're not continuing in adultery. You, like every other sinner in this room, has been forgiven by God and need now to get on with your life. For all of us, regardless of our situation, this truth should remind us to run to the cross, to run to the cross, to throw ourselves at the mercy seat of Jesus. It is not a light thing to separate what God has joined.
Run to the cross. Run to the cross. I quoted it earlier, I quote it again. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, <clears throat> I know that these truths have been difficult for some in this room. So would you come now and would you point our hearts and our eyes away from our own hurt and to a gracious God who reconciles. Lord, we are your spouse and we are unfaithful to you every day but yet you love us still. Lord, would you magnify our view of marriage so that it would reflect and display your enduring love for your people. Lord, if there's a person in this room who is considering breaking their covenant for an unbiblical reason, Lord, would you, would you interrupt their heart? Would you turn them back to their spouse? And would you let them know that we love them and that we will do whatever it takes to walk with them through this? Lord, if there's a person in this room who has biblical grounds for their divorce and there's no hope of restoration, uh, Lord, would you wrap your arms around that brother or sister? They've been wounded and sinned against in a deep way and they need love and mercy and encouragement. And God, if there comes a time when they uh, pursue remarriage, would you guard their hearts? Would you give them deep wisdom? Would they lean not on their own understanding, but would they trust in you? And would you, would you equip them for the potentiality of that second marriage so that, Lord, that one would last and magnify you and God for the thousands of different scenarios that may gray out the lines and be very difficult situations that maybe these seven principles didn't clearly touch on God in those situations would that brother or sister in this room who may find themselves in one of those scenarios would they not lean on their own wisdom would they not take lightly your covenant? Would they run to the cross? Would they run to Jesus? And would they receive his grace and his wisdom? And Lord, for the unbeliever in this room who may, even through this sermon on divorce and remarriage, by your gracious Holy Spirit, it has become clear to them that they have never trusted in you. Lord, would you, by your mercy and kindness, would you give them the gift of repentance and new life? And would you cause them to turn from their sin and give them faith so that they might trust in Jesus? And friend, if that is you right now, you turn from your self-righteousness, you turn from trusting in yourself, you turn from sin, and you turn to trust in Jesus. He is mighty to save. He delights in justifying the ungodly. Come to Jesus. Believe in him right now and be saved. Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.